Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I would be lying if I said I wake up every morning ready to be a mom, a wife, a friend. Sometimes my anxiety gets the worst of me and I want to do absolutely nothing. On Mothering Anxiety, a podcast by Maria Lopez, I talk about the real, the raw, and the very honest of what it's like to deal with everyday anxiety. I don't hold anything back. I use my own life experiences to be able to have others relate to me and to relate to their own experiences. My main goal is to make sure that everyone feels that they're not alone because I've been there. I've had those thoughts, I've had those worries, I've had those anxieties. If this sounds anything like you, take a listen to Mothering Anxiety, available on iTunes, Spotify, and any other major places you get your podcast from. So if the parent is constantly physically abusing the child, the child can't comprehend that, well, maybe my parents have their own stuff that they need to work through, and this is why they are the way they are. The child just says, well, it must be me. I mean, it must be something that I'm doing. It must be that I'm bad or that I'm not lovable or there's something wrong. And so the child internalizes that experience and then becomes very self-critical and withholds love from themselves, right? Like they lack, they lack self-compassion, they lack self-love. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand 
What makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls, this week I wanted to take some time to explore the topic of childhood trauma, the same topic that we hear about in all of the stories we share here every week. When we grow up in a home where our basic needs are not being met emotionally or physically, if there's abuse of any kind, manipulation, neglect, abandonment, if a parent is alcoholic, drug addicted or a survivor themselves, then we are very likely to experience trauma or complex trauma and find ourselves as adults struggling big time. We might struggle with our mental health or our physical health and chronic health issues and the events of childhood can absolutely continue their impact on us for a lifetime. I'm chatting with Joanna Philidor on this week's podcast Joanna is a licensed marriage and family therapist who is passionate about helping survivors heal their trauma. She has worked with many, many clients and is a wealth of information on this very important topic. You'll definitely learn something new in this episode. I'm super excited for this chat. Joanna, as a psychotherapist, your work is around helping survivors heal from childhood trauma. The work you're doing is amazing, and I could probably chat to you all day about this topic, but let's start off with what is trauma? Well, um, that is a uh, loaded question, (laughs) but um, in general, we would describe trauma as um, any experience that a person has, and that includes the themes of powerlessness, um, fear, feeling out of control, helplessness. Um, And so because we describe it like that, it can encompass a variety of, of, of experiences. What could be trauma for someone might not be considered trauma for someone else. And so when we say, well, this is trauma and this isn't, Although there are obviously certain things that we can just kind of categorize as trauma, like abuse and assault and combat, all those things, right? Natural disasters. Um, even within those, there's people that won't categorize it as trauma. So, so as mental health professionals, we always just kind of look at it more so in terms of the themes that uh, that describe these experiences, and then from there, people can can kind of self-identify and say, yes, this is trauma. And this isn't. It, it can be everything from, you know, childhood trauma where there was neglect, there was withholding of love, there was physical or, or emotional abuse or sexual abuse. Then there's, you know, single event traumas like 
car accidents and natural disasters. There can be combat trauma, um, relationship trauma when you, you know, when you're in a in an interpersonal relationship. Um, there's, you know, grief losing someone can be considered traumatic. Um, so there's just there's there's so many things that that can fall into that. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. and it opens the door for a lot of people to to seek out support for whatever their experience is. And so how can somebody recognize trauma within themselves? Because I feel like a lot of people are just going through their lives and things are not great for them, but you don't sort of really pinpoint that that's the Mm -hmm. reason or because we came Mm -hmm. from maybe a childhood that we considered our normal, that we don't understand that those things have caused trauma. What sort of things could we look for in ourselves if we're thinking along those lines? Yeah, that's a good question. And and because of that, it, it, it because someone doesn't realize that this is considered trauma, it can take them a long time to seek out the support that they need, which is a problem. And so um, trauma shows up differently for different people. There are kind of these general things that you would want to look for. So if there are experiences from your past that keep replaying in your mind or that seem to stand out more so than than others. That could be an indication that maybe there's something there that needs to get addressed. And so seeking out additional support over there would be important. If there's childhood trauma, for instance, because childhood trauma kind of gets intertwined in your sense of identity. So in the field, it's called little t trauma, which I don't like that description because although that's not what it really means that it's little or less than, it's just the way that it's described. And I, I don't agree with that, but um, basically what that means is just the chronic experiences that happen, the accumulation of these traumatic experiences that happen over time. And when those happen in childhood, that is your normal. That is what you consider to be a childhood. You don't question it. You don't think that it's different. You just think that that's how, ever, how everyone is. So it, it might take a little bit longer. So those will come out in how you view yourself. So if you're very self-critical, if you struggle with self-love, if you struggle with relationships, like trusting people or letting people help you or trusting people too much or not having boundaries on what you need and um, struggling with advocating for yourself, right? So there can be so many different ways that trauma shows up. There's obviously the the symptomatic presentation. If you have PTSD or if you have CPTSD that it it just shows up very specifically. It's hard to describe exactly what people need to see to say, okay, I have trauma. Um, A lot of trauma work happens over time. So it's it's kind of like a a discovery process where throughout time you start to make these connections and say, okay, well, yeah, like no wonder I'm this way, or I can understand why I fear relationships. You start to make those connections. And so, so yeah, so if you notice that you struggle with any of the things that I mentioned, that can be just a good indication that maybe it's worth exploring to see what, what else is there. And in that process, there will be kind of more self-awareness to say, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I did have trauma. Maybe I did go through some things. Because as kids, we're biologically driven to attach to our parents and 
and love them and feel love from them. So what does the child do when trauma happens to them to keep that love? What does a child do in its life to try and keep the love that it maybe isn't feeling from a parent? So uh, one of the more common things that children do is that they end up taking accountability and responsibility for whatever happened to them, because that is the only way that they can explain and they can understand and explain what is happening. So if the parent is constantly physically abusing the child, the child can't comprehend that, well, maybe my parents have their own stuff that they need to work through. And this is why they are the way they are. The child just says, well, it must be me. I mean, it must be something that I'm doing. It must be that I'm bad or that I'm not lovable or there's something wrong. And so the child internalizes that experience and then becomes very self-critical and withholds love from themselves, right? Like they lack, they lack self-compassion, they lack self-love. So that's one way that the child typically responds to childhood trauma. Another way is to people please. So I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to make sure that my parents or whoever the abuser is to make sure that they are okay and that they're not going to react or hit or abuse. And so that's where people pleasing and codependency walks in. Because, you know, if we think about a child's opportunity for survival, they can't fight because they're tiny and the perpetrator is typically a lot older and bigger. So the fight response is limited. The flight response, I guess they could run away for maybe, maybe to a, a grandparent's house or a friend's house, but that's not going to last very long. And if they're very, very little, that's very difficult. So flight doesn't work there. And so then there is freeze and fawn. And, and so with freeze, that's typically one of the most common experiences for children. And so what they do is they just go inward and they shut down and they withdraw. And, and then that can show up not engaging with people, isolating and being shut down. And as they get older, that translates into maybe even self-harm into hopelessness, into depression, into all of these things. And so trauma in childhood can really affect a person because it, it's hard to fathom or comprehend why someone would do that to a child. And so the child also is baffled and confused and they're going to try to find ways to make sense of what's happening. Can you experience trauma from a baby and does that is that something that can stay with you even though you don't remember it? Yeah so there is something called pre-verbal trauma. So there's intergenerational trauma where it gets passed down generationally. So like for instance you know, if the parent was abused and they experienced obviously all of the, the, the chemical and biological changes in their, in their body and in their brain when that happened, and then they get pregnant or they have a child, all of that can get passed down genetically. So there's a lot of research around that. And then there's a pre-verbal trauma if it happens directly to you. So if you are as an infant, before you remember or before you had verbal ability to express yourself, you experience any sort of abuse. The way that the, the brain comprehends it is there's a, there's a big experience that is happening that obviously the child, the baby can't understand, but internally the system doesn't understand. And so if it's repetitive and if it continues, it limits the child's ability to tolerate more and more things as time passes. So the, what we call the window of tolerance shrinks and we're all born with a regular sized window of tolerance, meaning whatever, whenever we're inside the window, we're able to tolerate stress and we're able to tolerate it without going to fight, flight, or freeze. When we have preverbal trauma and 
um, attachment trauma, that window just shrinks. And so our ability to cope and self-regulate and be attuned to ourselves and to others and to feel like we are worthy and lovable, it, it is limited. And so with preverbal trauma, it just makes it that much more difficult. And if you have childhood trauma later on, it's very, very hard to heal from that until later when you have the words, when you are able to make sense of what is happening and express it and process it. And I've seen you refer to something called fused feelings. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so fused feelings is a really interesting concept. It basically talks about how when, especially when we're growing up, right, we, we're we given these messages, covert and overt, and overt messages about everything, right? So everything from love to our roles, like as women or as men or as culturally, what our roles are. There's all these messages that we receive. Some are very direct and some are very, as an example, an overt message could be at 10 p.m. is curfew, right? It's very clear. That's exactly what everyone knows and expects and understands. An over message, it can be something like if the, if the parent is hitting the child and says, I'm hitting you because I love you, then that's sending the message that love and pain or love and fear just go together. And this is how you understand love, right? No one's saying this is how you understand love, but because the, the action and then the statement are kind of confusing and don't really make sense, then we, we gather a message from that. And it's typically that. So that's where the fused feelings come from. It's we start to associate two experiences that really shouldn't go together. We associate them as kind of one package deal. So jealousy and love is a common one for adult relationships, right? So if you're in an abusive relationship and um, there is a great deal of jealousy and the person, the partner says, well, why aren't you jealous? Like, this is the way that you should love me. Then you kind of, train yourself to see, well, if I'm not jealous, I must not love this person. Or if this person is not jealous, then it means they must not love me. And then, you know, as children, it can be like the example I gave, pain and love or pain and fear. Or with sex, there can be uh, several fused feelings too. So part of trauma work and part of the recovery process is to unfuse them, right? Like to separate these feelings and, and realize that these are two separate experiences that don't happen together. And because we perceive them as happening together, that's how we get stuck in these cycles, especially relationally, because we seek that combination of feelings and a healthy person won't have that combination of feelings. And so you get stuck with these unhealthy relationships and toxic relationships that feed that feeling or that fused experience or that fused feeling. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, all of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... <laughs> Related to that. So when a child is being affected by trauma when they're still a child, how is that affecting them or how is that showing up for a child? How can we recognize it? Different ways. Um, And again, I, I, I wish I could give you these very exact answers, but nothing is that you know, black and white with trauma. So I will give general examples and and just know that this is obviously there's variations. So very common one is obviously it also depends on the age of the child too, but if they're school day children, their school, their academics will, will likely suffer. But then again, you can encounter children that will go the opposite direction and will only focus on their school and will only focus on their life outside of the home, right? So you can encounter both. For very young children, uh, they might really struggle with play because part of what to be able to play and, and let yourself experience that, you have to 
let yourself drop your walls and drop your barriers because you have to let yourself be spontaneous and play and be curious. And a lot of those things can be very dangerous if there's someone that is going to hurt you at home. Right. If you if you're spontaneous, that creates uncertainty. And if that person, the parent or whoever is the abuser is not cool with uncertainty. Right. If they don't respond well to that, then that's likely going to increase the risk of more abuse. And so spontaneity gets kind of kind of turned down. Play can get affected. Um, you can see behaviorally a lot. So children that maybe get into trouble a lot or children that start to mimic that same behavior. So if they're seeing abuse at home, physical abuse, they might um, start hitting kids at school. They might start to get more aggressive or you can see the opposite. They start to really shut down and internalize and not talk to anyone. So it, it, it can just look very differently for any child it, because it also depends on who else they have as a support system. If they don't have anyone else, their behaviors might be a little bit bigger. What we see might be a little bit bigger. If they have other people, if they have other supportive figures, the way that they process that trauma and express that trauma will will likely change too. Yeah, so if, say, two kids experience the same trauma and one had a support network, that's going to really help them as they grow into an adult are there any other things that will mean that you'll have a more positive experience of moving into adulthood than if if you didn't have those things yeah so what helps move through trauma is something called resilience and resilience is something that can can be acquired it also depends you know a lot on where you're born and I'm not talking about location wise but in terms of the privileges and the experiences that you have and that are that are available to you. So if you do have a lot of people who are there to support you, if you don't live in a neighborhood that is dangerous, right, that is going to give you more opportunity for healing than if you're having to go home to a neighborhood that is very unsafe, right? So there's, there's things like that. There's also, uh, if you have someone who is attuned to your needs, and again, this, this can be hard, right, because of the abuser, if the perpetrator is, is a parent, um, you might not have someone, but you might have a teacher or you might have a, a grandparent. So it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the close family unit that would allow for someone, for a child to be able to, to heal from it or to, to bounce back from a traumatic experience more. It can be any significant individual in a child life. It can be also, you know, if they had, for instance, a, a good upbringing and then something happened, maybe you're on like age eight or nine or 10, their chances of moving through it are greater because they've already experienced a good amount of their childhood with a pretty stable and supportive experience growing up. So that can also change it. Then there's also generationally, if there is any alcohol abuse or mental illness, that obviously can predispose the future generation to be more prone or more likely to use these methods and then to experience these illnesses, these mental illnesses throughout their trauma. So that can obviously affect it too. So again, it's, it can range and it can vary so, so broadly. So can you explain how we get triggered by things and, and maybe we'll talk about what are some of the ways to cope with triggers as well? Yeah. So the best, the, the, the way that I, I love to explain it to my clients is imagine that, so we're going through our life and our brain is taking recordings of everything that we experience. 
these imagine like VHSs or like CD players or whatever DVD players. And so it's recording all of our experiences. And when we're able to record fully and process it well, like, right, like we're able to understand what happened. We're able to learn from the experience, nothing traumatic happened, or, or even if it was traumatic, you were able to kind of work through it all the way to completion. Then the brain stores that recording into a filing cabinet. Great. So it's, it's away, it's stored away. There's no problem at all. Now, if there is a traumatic experience, that tape does not get recorded and stored away properly, right? It gets stuck. It, it almost like it just gets stuck. It never gets filed away. And so because it just gets stuck, it basically lives, and I'm pointing to my forehead right now for the listeners. So I, it kind of gets stuck in your forehead, right? And so in the future, so you fast forward to kind of a future experience, Anything that that tape recorded, so sounds, textures, conversations, tone of voice, experiences, right, and images, anything that the tape recorded is still there. And so you fast forward to an experience as, a, as, a, as an adult or later on in life where a similar sensory experience or a similar image or a similar situation happens because the, the brain hasn't stored that away, then it just brings it right back up. It's right there in front of you. And now you're reacting to that tape. You're not reacting to what happened. So to give you a more concrete example, let's say that the, the tape that was recorded was of a, of a child seeing their parent scream at them because they spilled milk, right? So they, the parent lost it and then the child spilled it. The child spilled the milk and then the parent lost it. And so for many reasons, the, that the brain was unable to process that well. So the tape has not been stored. And so then now... Fast forward to as an adult, you're riding the train with a friend and you accidentally spill your coffee. And your friend might your friend might say something like, oh no, you spilled your coffee, right? Maybe like oh, some surprise and, and some like, oh no, what are we gonna do? The person who experienced the trauma and the experiences of, of the, the milk situation will see that and will react to that reaction, even though the friend is not reacting in any specific way, in any mean way, they're just making an observation, but the tape got triggered in that moment. It got activated. It's almost like it got turned on. It got put back in, got play. And then now in your brain, you're having all of these memories of the time where you spilled the milk and your dad reacted in this way. And so your, your fight or flight basically gets activated and you start to have a, a trauma response to something that happened in the present, the coffee spilling, but there is no, there is nothing wrong with the coffee spilling. It just happened. It was a mistake, but your brain hasn't processed and learned from the experience that, Hey, sometimes we spill things and that's okay. It doesn't matter. Nothing's going to happen, but because that was never learned and that was never an experience that was processed thoroughly, you feel like you're still living in it. And that's how the, that's how the trigger happened. Yeah, absolutely. So your brain's been programmed in a certain way yeah. and you're mm -hmm. just going to react that way until you figure out that there's a different way to do it. How can we cope with those triggers? What can we do to calm them down or be more aware of them? I'll give you an, a practical tool that I can ex explain in a little bit that I, I always use with my clients and I think it's really great. But basically the what you first want to learn to do is to develop awareness as to what the triggers are. A lot of people don't even realize what their triggers are. Um, that takes time and it's part of the journey of really understanding, okay, yes, it's it's anytime I spill something or anytime someone else spills something, I get triggered. 
but that connection is not really made initially. And so it takes time to observe and to make note of when, when do I react? When do I feel like I'm not responding to something that's actually happening in the present? And so you make a list. So you want to first make a list of all the triggers and that is an ongoing list. This is not something that you'll fill out in one, you know, in one sitting, because as you keep living your life and as you keep kind of exploring things and experiencing new things, you're going to have new triggers because that's just how, remember the tape is filled with all these experiences. As you experience more, your brain kind of starts to make more and more connections. So first is observing what actually triggers me and you make a list. And then you want to, for some, you'll have some awareness about it. For some, you won't, but, but next you really want to understand what is it about this that is, that is triggering something from the past, right? So if it's, if you see that, you know, it's, it's a smell of coffee, then, then you start to think about well, what, what is it about coffee? Is it the smell? Is there something, did it have an experience that had something to do with coffee before? And so you start to develop little by little, some awareness as to what image is being brought up whenever I have a trigger, because there's always an image, right? So it can be a split second image. A lot of people don't even realize that there's an image until you slow down and realize that way. I just, I, I know what I'm thinking about when I get triggered. And so identifying what the image is, is very important. And then after that, you want to try to identify kind of like the themes of it. So what do I believe is happening when I get triggered? So when I spill my coffee in the train, what does my body think is happening? Is it that I'm unsafe? Is it that I'm unlovable? Is it that I'm not worthy, right? Because there's, there's always a, a belief system associated with that trigger. And that's the belief system that was instilled growing up. So if dad, when he would yell and scream when the, when the milk would spill and he would say, well, you're so stupid, what is wrong with you? Then maybe the belief is apart from probably I'm unsafe or something bad is going to happen. It would be something like I'm stupid, right? And so that would be the thoughts that you might be telling yourself or the, the way that you're talking to yourself. That's probably something that would be included in that. And then you want to identify the emotions. Like what emotions am I feeling when I get triggered? Is it fear? Is it shame? Is it sadness? Um, is it anger? And then identifying your body sensations. So it's a, it's a long process because a trigger is complex. It's not just so simple where you can just say, okay, yeah, it's a trigger. Let me put it aside. It takes practice to get to a point where you can say, oh yeah, that was a trigger. I just got triggered, but I'm safe and everything's okay. Right? So before you can even get to that point, you have to just learn to understand. It's like you're dissecting the trigger. What, it, what is it made of? It's made of these feelings, of these thoughts, of these sensations, of these images. And then you put all that together. And the more you can understand it, you'll be able to be better prepared for it next time. Because guess what? Next time you spill that coffee, if you know exactly what that trigger is and what you feel and why you're feeling the way you are, next time you spill that coffee, you're going to be like, okay, like, I'm, I, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm not reacting about the coffee. I'm reacting because of this incident that happened in childhood, right? And that immediately is going to help you regulate and feel a, a, a little bit more present in your body. So with that said, there's something that you can Google it. It's called the TICES log, T-I-C-E-S log. I also created one on my website, but it's basically, it stands for trigger, image, cognition, which is a belief system, emotion, and sensation. That's an EMDR tool, but anyone can print it. And it's a really great way to break down triggers and understand what is happening when you do get triggered. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and it's really when you start getting a real awareness around those things, it's mm-hmm. like you, you can take your power back, can't you? Because yes, you, yes. every time you get into that situation where you're so triggered, you really are just feeling powerless mm-hmm. and just being able to take the power back and have some yes. control and understanding around it. It's just so wonderful to yeah, have that yeah. information, I think. And, you know, so much of trauma recovery is about taking the power back and about feeling empowered and feeling in control of what you can be in control of and feeling like you can trust yourself and trust your instinct. And so, yeah, taking that power back happens through things like this, where you don't feel yeah. overwhelmed or powerless over your symptoms, over your trauma. Absolutely. What is complex PTSD? So complex PTSD is a way that mental health professionals use to explain symptoms of trauma that don't fit in PTSD because of typically complex PTSD is something that happens from early childhood experiences. For some reason, this diagnosis is not actually part of what we call the DSM, which is the manual of like all of the diagnoses. It doesn't actually exist officially, which is so crazy. But as mental health professionals and and trauma therapists, we use that to really explain that these experiences, that is a form of PTSD. You might not have the exact symptoms of PTSD, but it's pretty close and it's its own experience. And so what you experience with complex PTSD, a lot of it is relational too. So like fear of abandonment, there can be fear of difficulty with trusting people. There can be, so there's that. And then there can be also the hypervigilance and the nightmares and the flashbacks of PTSD, right? So it's not just the PTSD and it's not kind of relational wounds it's a it's the combination of both and um and so that's kind of how the term that we use to describe all of that because it's not an actual diagnosis a lot of people don't know that it exists and uh i i get clients all the time years you know after their their experiences and 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 they they haven't gone to therapy before and then we talk about that and they realize that wow like this is this is this describes me perfectly this is exactly what i've been through and it, it helps them kind of take that power back to like, okay, like I have something and I know what that I can do with it now. I know how I can move forward because I have a, a starting point. Yes, absolutely. I understand that. I'm, I'm sure that it's just being able to categorize that and say, okay, 
there's a thing and it's called this and I can actually do something with it instead of it just being this explosion of stuff. You practice EMDR therapy, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So can you explain to us what is EMDR? Sure. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is basically just a bunch of fancy words to describe this trauma modality that this is is always so hard to explain because it's, it's just, it's just such a unique uh, modality. So I'm going to do my best at explaining it. So like, I guess, let me backtrack. So when we think of EMDR, the, the model behind it is that there is an adaptive informational processing model within us. What that means is our brain is naturally and organically geared towards adaptive resolution. So if something happens, we are, our brain is just naturally going to work towards healing right? Like our our brain doesn't want to not heal and our body doesn't want to not heal. It wants to heal. Now there are things, experiences that are too large and too overwhelming to process. There can be experiences that we have in our lives that can make it very difficult for us to find adaptive resolution and healing in our lives. And so it's almost like that system gets stuck, right? So these traumatic experiences freeze or, or get stuck in that, in that, in that system. And so that's why it feels like you can't, you can't move forward, right? Like you're just kind of stuck. And so what EMDR does is it takes the experiences and it helps with processing them and understanding them so that you can then learn from those experiences and, and move forward. So with the example of the, the child spilling the milk in a adaptive resolution of that memory, something that the child would probably get is, well, that wasn't my fault, right? Mistakes happen. We all, we can all spill milk or coffee or juice. The mistakes don't define me. That was a, I was a baby. I was a child, right? So those are learning experiences that can come from thoroughly processing an experience like that. Sometimes we're able to process it on our own and that doesn't get stuck in our system, right? We're able to separate and say like, okay, well, that clearly, that was just my dad. He, I mean, clearly he has something that is bothering him. That was not okay. He shouldn't have done that. And then I'm just going to keep going because I, I can separate that and I can adaptively find resolution from that. When we can't do that, that's where EMDR can come in. So we basically take these main memories that are keeping the system stuck and we identify what we talked about, Tyses, right? So we identify the trigger, the image, the cognition, the emotion, and the sensation. And we allow the brain to naturally do what it needs to do. And we help the brain through bilateral stimulation. So that can be through eye movements. It can be through tapping. It can be through, you know, now with technology, there's like the light bar, there's like sound that you can do. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. But, um, and so when you're able to desensitize the image, meaning all of that sensory experience gets toned down and you're able to, the brain is now able to look at that experience and not get so activated and so overwhelmed. Then you're able to now learn from that experience, right? Because we can't really learn from something if we're just so activated and we and if we're feeling like we're in danger, we're not using our prefrontal cortex to think and learn and understand because that doesn't matter. We're trying to survive, right? So um, so, so yeah, so, so that's what EMDR basically does. You desensitize, and then you find that, that adaptive resolution through um, kind of, as you close down the memory, you, you add a new positive belief that fits better. So in that example, the negative one could have been like, you know, I'm bad. And then the positive one that you're adding to that and replacing it with could be, um, I am good, or I am, 
I am okay as I am could be a good one, right? So, so it can be really powerful, really healing to change the narrative of how you experience these memories. And that's, that's what makes EMDR so great. Um, and there's, there's so many other modalities too, right? This is just one of many. And I, um, although I love EMDR, there are so many other modalities that are also amazing. And sometimes EMDR is not for everyone and that's okay too. So, so it's, it's about finding what works best. Yeah. I was going to ask you, does it, does it work for most people EMDR? Um, it can work for a lot of different people with complex trauma, somatic approaches can work even better um, or a combination of both or internal family systems, which is kind of doing parts work um, can also be really powerful. So EMDR was initially really helpful for that single event trauma. That's when you see kind of the, the, the faster results you see them typically with EMDR in a single event trauma, because you're just doing, you're doing that one event and that's it. But because complex trauma is so, it's so hard to pick like okay, these main experiences, there might be some main experiences, but it's filled with a bunch of other experiences too. Uh, it's just going to take a little bit longer than right. it would with just a single event, just because there's so many and they're so complex and they're so intertwined into one another. It can work for a lot of people. It's just knowing that with complex trauma, it will take a little bit longer. Even though it will take longer, it will not take as long as traditional talk therapy. So it's still a much more efficient and better way to to do complex trauma work that's interesting Um, how much do you think trauma presents in our body as physical symptoms so much it is trauma lives in the body and you know there's a there's a lot of kind of statements that kind of get thrown around and a really common one is the body remembers and what that means is that all that traumatic stress because it doesn't get processed because it doesn't, it's not able to move through that adapt, through that adaptive resolution, then it just remains. And when it doesn't get exerted out, when it, you're not able to put it out there, I mean, that if you look at it as if it was energy, that energy has to go somewhere, right? So if it's not taken, be taken out in a healthy way, it's going to go somewhere. So that can mean you can experience uh, chronic pain, you can experience digestive issues, you can experience tension headaches or migraines. And then there is the unknown medical issues. Like a lot of trauma survivors show up to the doctor and say that they're experiencing all these medical things, but there's no reason medically as to why. And that's typically also a sign of, of unresolved trauma. And then there's, you know, that energy can translate into behaviors, right? So there's self-harm. And then, so there's, there's all these things that can happen because of that unresolved energy. And we're saying energy in a very simple, you know, in a simple way to describe what's happening internally, but all of that energy does need to go somewhere. And through things like somatic work, EMDR, brain spotting, right? There's so many ways to release that energy in a healthy way so that you are able to you know, live your life without it literally affecting your nervous system. Absolutely. I noticed that you, you said that it affects your eating, elimination and sleeping. And mm-hmm. that was like, oh, just those three main parts of anybody's life. Mm-hmm. Each of those things can have so many different disorders and so many things around eating, mm-hmm. elimination and sleeping. And um, yeah. 
yeah, it kind of was a bit of a light bulb moment for me when I read that. I thought all those chronic issues that people are walking around with that Mm -hmm. just affect the basic functioning of our body. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so much of our more advanced abilities as human beings, right, to learn and understand and and problem solve and all of that is, is we're only able to do that if our basic functions and then our basic needs are met. It's very difficult to to do any of that if we feel like we're not sleeping well, if we're constantly tired, if we're not using the restroom when we need to, if we are um, not sleeping. I mean, you know, it's just, it becomes very, very, very difficult. And so it affects and it translates into other areas of your life. If you're constantly tired, you're probably not gonna do well at work or in school. And then if you don't do well in school, then that can be, or at work, then that's gonna have other consequences, right? So it's a domino effect. And um, so it really starts within the body. And, and that's why it's also, we talk about in trauma that doing trauma work really happens from the bottom up, meaning you're working from the body going up to the thoughts and the feelings and the, the way that you kind of create the narrative up here. You have to start with the body first because of that. And so for someone who feels stuck in their past and unable to move forward, how important do you think it is for people to be proactive in healing? Because you can just remain stuck, can't you? And sort of just think, mm-hmm something's going to happen for me at some point. Yeah. Feeling empowered and owning kind of the responsibility of your recovery is very important. And one of the things that I hear the most to trauma survivors is it doesn't seem fair to me. This is what trauma survivors would say that I'm the one that is having to do all this work when the person who caused me harm is living their life like nothing happened. And yeah, I mean, it's not fair and it's not right. And obviously the trauma and what happened to you was not your fault. And unfortunately, the only way to move forward is to own your recovery moving forward because no one else can, no one else can do it for you. And so it's, that is kind of a a barrier that trauma survivors have to work through first, um, realizing that although it's not fair, that is just now what needs to happen. And so owning your recovery, owning um, your healing process is that first step. And then yes, being proactive, realizing that the recovery process takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, And especially if there's childhood trauma, like I've said, the trauma gets kind of intertwined in all of who you are. And so you have to take it apart. Every part of a personality, you have to talk about your relationships, how you view yourself, how you relate to the world, you know, how you trust yourself, your judgment, your instinct, right? There's so many aspects of trauma work that require the trauma survivor to be fully there, present and willing to do the work because no one can change those things for for the trauma survivor. Um, I wish it could be like that, right? Because it isn't fair. It's not right um, that this is kind of what ends up having to ha- having to happen. But um, that's unfortunately the only way to move forward. And to be proactive also requires a good support system. And so it's, it doesn't mean being proactive doesn't mean doing it alone. It means obviously be motivated to do these things. You might not want to do them, but do them. And then have a really good support system of other trauma survivors, of supportive people in your life who love you and respect you and value you, right? All of those things are just as important, if not more, to trauma recovery and to keeping you moving forward. Do people need to forgive 
in order to heal, do you think? I know, I don't believe so. I think that forgiveness and trauma recovery is more about making the decision of whether you want to keep carrying this or not. It doesn't mean, forgiving doesn't mean approving of what happened. So um, a lot of people will say, well, if I forgive, then that means that, that I'm saying it's okay what happened. And it doesn't. And it, in fact, the forgiveness doesn't even have to happen face to face. It can be an internal process of saying, okay, I, I'm done carrying this. I'm done carrying this resentment and this anger. And which is all, obviously it makes sense why that person is resentful and angry and, and, and all of those experiences are valid. But the person will come to a place internally where they'll say, I, I cannot keep carrying this. If I want to move forward, this is drowning me. It's like, I cannot take a deep breath if I keep doing this. And so that's kind of the only forgiveness that as a trauma therapist, I would ever kind of push towards would be, how do you, how do you let go of this? How do you forgive yourself? That is a big one. Forgiveness of self. Um, but forgiving the perpetrator, not at all. It, it can happen. And sometimes it happens organically throughout the process. Sometimes it's a very um, purposeful kind of thought and decision to say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to let this go. But you never have to go to the perpetrator and say, I forgive you. You never yeah. have to, it has, it has nothing to do with them. It's all about you and that, that of what you're carrying. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you have a three-year-old son, I believe. Almost three. Yes. He'll be oh, three in a, in a couple of months. Yes. <laughs> what are you doing for him every day to give him the best life? Mm -hmm. I love that question. Um, so safety is the biggest, one of the biggest things. So making sure that he feels that not only is it physically safe, but that it is, it is safe for him to express his whole self. So if he's screaming or crying or throwing things or upset the way that a toddler is, my job is not to react to that is to, and as parents it's very hard um, to just be like, you know, but, but, but my job is to remember that he's having a hard time, not giving me a hard time. And so how can I support him as he's having a hard time, right? Um, is it that if he I tell him to stop playing and he starts to get really upset, yeah, it's hard to, to be told that, that we need to do something when we don't want to, right? And so it's, it's creating empathy and connection and safety, trying to be attuned to his needs, and then giving him the space to be his own person too, right? So he is his own person, no matter how, I mean, and we, I've been doing this with my husband since he was a, you know, since my son was like a newborn. It's he is his own person with his own needs and his own wants and his own dislikes and likes. And I'm here to support that and to create a space for that, to make sure that he trusts himself and he trusts his judgment, right? So part of that too is letting him make mistakes and letting him Sometimes he's playing and he spills something and okay, that's okay. Let's, let's clean it, right? Let's, let's, let's go get a paper towel and clean it together. Um, instead of kind of putting him in a bubble because that's not going to, that's not going to work either. So yeah, it takes patience and love and understanding and slowing down and, uh, you know, and doing our own work as parents. That is a big, yeah. big part of it. Yeah. And to kind of tie it to what we've been talking about, unresolved trauma will show up in your parenting. And so that is why doing that work, even as you are parenting, doing that work, figuring out what it is about what is happening with your child that is triggering something within you. It's not about the child. It's about your own stuff that's being brought up. So it's doing our own work too. Yeah. I love that. And it sounds so balanced and beautiful. I love it. And he's 
going to be a very lucky young man, I think, having you you as his mama. Joanna, you have a fabulous Instagram account called The Resilient Self, which is super informative around the topic of trauma. Please tell us where we can find you and what you're offering. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you can, I'm most active in the resilience of on Instagram. And then I do have a website, which is Joanna Philidor MFT.com. I am licensed in California, so I'm unable to see people that are not from California, but I am, um, I, I am able to offer resources for people that are not in California. So I'm currently working on a, on a, uh, an e-course that is going to be for trauma survivors, primarily childhood trauma. So that's going to be, can, within the next couple of months will be out. And that's someone that any, that's something that anyone can sign up for. Um, I do have some, a lot of free resources in my website. I have worksheets, workbooks. I have a journaling challenge as well. Um, and it's all free. You can download the Tice's log there too, if you want to download from there. And I also have a Pinterest and Facebook, <laughs> but, uh, but Instagram is probably the, the most active. So you can follow me there. And um, yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm also here to make myself available for resources. It can be really intimidating to find support and to know where to look. And if I can help, I'm happy to do that. So I'm, I do welcome people to DM me with um, just, I obviously can't do therapy over anything other than being my client, but, but I can point them in, in directions of where they can look for a therapist or how they can find the support that they need. So I am available for that as well. Oh, that sounds amazing. Well, Joanna, thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting to you today. You're obviously a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And yeah, I would encourage everyone to go across to connect with you on Instagram. And I'll put all the links up in the show notes so people can just click down there and um, come across. So thank you so much for connecting with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. I love being able to talk about this. It's, it's, it doesn't get talked about enough. Well, now, now it's starting to with social media, but, um, but it's, it's great what you're doing here, giving a voice to survivors and a community to survivors. It's just so important. It's such an important part of the healing process. I think it's great what you're doing here and thank you for having me. Thank you. Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.